Hi there. Welcome back to The Yoga Show from Yoga Journal. You're a place to connect with thought leaders in the wellness community who are making waves big and small. I'm your host, Lindsay Tucker, executive editor of Yoga Journal. And in this podcast, we produce four episode series around the themes of each issue of our magazine. The theme of our September-October issue is healing. And today, we're chatting with Ray Johnson and N. Kem Defo, who are leading an embodied activism course from Embodied Philosophy. Drawing on neuroscience, somatic theory and practice, liberation psychology, trauma-informed and anti-oppressive education, and lived experience, the course examines practical strategies to reclaiming, resisting, and interrogating the political realities of our everyday lives using the felt experiences of our bodies as groundwork for social justice, so we can come at personal and community healing from the inside out. This episode is sponsored by Say Your Peace. Say Your Peace aims to spark global change through self-transformation and community dialogue. Share your story by using hashtag SayYourPeace, that's P-E-A-C-E, and following us on Instagram and Facebook. And now, here's my conversation with N. Kem and Ray. Hi, folks. Thanks for being with us today. Thank nice you to for having here. us. So I'm taking both of your course, which is Embodied Activism, and so I just started taking it. So I'm on Module 3 right now. And so I wanted to have you guys on the show today just to sort of talk about this work that you're doing and ask some questions about it and sort of share the journey that I'm taking through this course with some of our listeners. Wonderful. So if you wouldn't mind starting out just telling us a little bit, what is somatic training for the uninitiated? Ray, you want to take that one? Sure. Yeah. I might, I might reframe the question just a little bit, Lindsay, and instead start by talking about what a somatic perspective is um, sure. because I think that that'll help listeners get a better sense of, of what it means when it's applied to education or training or psychotherapy or anything else that it might be applied to, including activism. Really, um, for me, and I think for a lot of folks who do this work, a somatic perspective means that we're really paying attention to how our bodies feel from the inside rather than what they look like from the outside. So for example, somatic education is very different from physical education. Physical education is, you know, can you learn how to play basketball or how many push-ups can you do or can you touch your toes? Somatic education focuses on how do we inhabit our own bodies and begin to regain some of the um, capacities that I think are often lost to us through other forms of training, like um, phys ed, for example, or sitting in a classroom for eight hours a day, keeping still, or, or in an office or at a computer, that we lose our sensual capacities our, our ability for feeling inside our bodies, for being in touch with our own movement, being tuned into the um, movements and postures and gestures of other people and, and other facets of our environment. So it's, it's really much, very much about how are we feeling inside our bodies and what does that mean and what implications unfold from that perspective, because it's a very um, different perspective than I think many of us are taught to take 
about our own experience, our own lives, and the world around us. I would add that there's a, I mean, I think it's about rectifying a gap. It's about making whole because we, this planet is dominated by Western culture, which is very dualistic, very mind-body separation. To even say that we need a somatic perspective from somebody who doesn't come from mind-body dualism, they just look at you quizzically. What? Yep. Like, what are you even talking about? Embodied? Like, is there any other way to be? And so that we, it's about restoring um, this gap or filling in this blank space from which there's so much wisdom, so much information, so much, um, it's like a huge piece of us. So it's like coming, becoming whole again. Mm -hmm. Um, So I see it in that way. And how do you think as human beings in modern society, we've gotten so far away from that way of life? Um. There's lots of different factors. Um, Mm -hmm. I think capitalism is a big piece of it. The drive for production and for consumption, it's the drive for action versus being, um, is huge, is huge in this, um, where, um, and especially when we're in late stage capitalism, where just the, the, the crank has been turned up to such a volume that to have pause and reflect is revolutionary, like, right? Um, I think there's uh, a, a big fear of the body. Yeah. A big fear of the body um, as if it can't be tamed, it can't be understood, it's mysterious, and so it's relegated to something less than. And so um, thoughts predominate, and that is in everything. We think we can basically think our way out of any problem that rationality is the solution. So it shows up in all different kinds of ways. Um, but I think that those are, you know, some big, some big roots there. Mm-hmm. Ray, what do you, what do you want to add? Uh, yeah, I ab- absolutely. Um, capitalism and industrialization in the West anyway, have been really, really significant factors in this push to disconnect from our sensual selves. Um, but even earlier than that, I would say just sort of any social um, movement that emphasizes domination and control. So there's, there's industrialization and there's capitalism, but there's also, um, in, the, in the West, there is a philosophical tradition from the Greeks onward through Rene Descartes that's really... Um, defining the body and its senses as, um, as base, as evil, as um, warranting suspicion and mistrust, that, that our refined capacities as human beings are our thoughts and our spirit and our mm. baser impulses are all located in our bodily selves. So there's a, yeah, there's a philosophical tradition. There's a religious tradition as well as an economic push to um, to disconnect folks from the lived experience of their body. And I, I think it's actually strategic, which is why I name the impulses toward social domination and control as the thread that runs through what I see a lot of disembodiment practices 
and attitudes. And that the point that they're multi, they, they reinforce each other and they, it's a synthesis where, um, so wherever you w- look, it's a, it's culture. Culture is the water that we swim in. And so it's almost hard to describe yourself being wet because it's just everywhere. It's, um, yeah. Un- until you, until you actually find a way through as Lindsay, as you were suggesting, through a somatic practice for some people. And since we're on the yoga show, we might as well name yoga as one of those practices mm-hmm. that, that can serve as the entry point to this real paradigm shift, this real perceptual shift between my body's an object that I do things to and I, and I work to try to improve. And so I'm doing yoga as a way to, you know, help my body be more flexible or stronger or look better or lose weight or whatever this is. And that at some point for some people, a shift occurs in this somatic practice that they're doing where all of a sudden they realize that why they're on the mat is because there's something about being in their own bodies Mm -hmm. that's intoxicating, revolutionary, liberating, grounding, freeing, and that's really the somatic shift. Now, I do want to come back, circle back around to this idea of the somatic shift and being in your own body. But real quick, I just want to follow up on um, something that you mentioned, Ray, which was sort of the economic incentive to disconnect people from their bodies. Sure. Yeah. Like the way mindfulness has been commodified in the West as a way to feel happy and make you more productive and mm-hmm. uh, make you a better producer and a better consumer as opposed to it's about like your efficiency more than anything, as opposed to the idea of becoming mindful of my internal experience and perhaps locating the fact that there's a sense of collapse or there's a sense of rage or there's whatever is there and that I'm actually in response to the environment around me and that perhaps if I can tune into my somatic experience that that might inform my actions and inform my thoughts. So I'll see, for example, in a workplace where they're like, great, we want to bring in like lunchtime yoga so people can like power up afterwards and be super productive after lunch, right? And instead, people, let's say that they actually practice in a way where they begin to feel like this is untenable what the work demands are here. And I feel like I can't keep up. And so I have this feel of collapse inside and hopelessness Mm -hmm. and... I actually am quite numb just to make it through the day. And so in that experience, especially if it happens in a collective, right, in a collective way where there's a connection and then a sharing, a verbalizing of that, that surfaces and realizing that that's not a soul experience, that that's a shared experience, that's revolutionary. That's where people say, my body, this is it's something I often say is we can mm-hmm. lie to ourselves from our heads, but our bodies can't lie to us. And so when your body is saying something is wrong in a certain mm-hmm. way, right? Mm-hmm. And I want to say there is an exception for people with heavy trauma loads that we can have distorted body messages about what's happening in the present because they're connected to the past. So it's, our body isn't lying to us. The question is, is it telling us the truth about the, this moment or a past moment? But if it's telling the truth about this, this current moment, it inspires action, right? Mm-hmm. It inspires us to say, this isn't working for me. I need mm-hmm. a change. We need a change. 
the system isn't working. And I think we can see from the state of the world that for many, most people, the system isn't working in many ways. Mm -hmm. Um, And so that's a, you know, for people to locate that sensation, that true knowing in their body is quite revolutionary. I I guess what I would add about, you know, the, the, the strategy of disembodiment politically and historically and economically is, is that I think we would be naive to think that it's not actually strategic, that it's not an accident that this is how human beings came to be somehow, that somehow inadvertently we lost the connection to our own experiencing bodily selves. I think that it's strategic. And part of the Mm -hmm. reason that I believe that to be true is that in order to commit the kinds of atrocities, and I don't use that word lightly, in order to commit the kinds of atrocities that we have been committing on a massive scale over the last several thousand years to one another and to the planet, requires us not to feel what we're doing. Mm. We can't go to war and actually engage in the kind of kinesthetic empathy that we're neurologically wired to have for our fellow human beings. It's not possible. It's not tenable. So learning how to disconnect and to not be in your body is actually something I believe that we have been trained to do so that systems and states that depend upon, as Enkem was suggesting, the, the, um, the labor at a, you know, at a punishing level of production and the kind of destruction of one another and the environment, I, just, I think that there's actually a very um, political reason why we find ourselves at the beginning of the 21st century remarkably disembodied as a sort of as a a global culture although there are there are absolutely still cultures alive and well that are not experiencing disembodiment to the same degree that i think those of us in the west do i think it's on purpose do you think that the overload of information that we're constantly getting bombarded with through different types of media is part of that what do you think isn't that you as isn't that been your experience Yes. And, and that's kind of why I asked the question. I just want to hear it, you know, from you, because I do, you know, you see the way that it's people seem so enraged about one from one news story to the next. But then in two weeks, it's like, oh, I, you almost forgot about that. Or, you know, they're just on to the next. It's a symptom, right? It's both a symptom and it makes it worse. So mm-hmm. the reason why we're here is because of you know, how we got here, right? It's like, it's a complicated, it's a, like a recursive loop. So it loops around. So we were here with this incredible 24-hour news cycle, intense globalization. The reason that we got here, right, is from some of these impulses that we've been talking about, and then it worsens it, right? And so people are overwhelmed mm-hmm. and their bodies disconnect. It really, as like a safety valve, right? Like numbness as a safety valve, not even a choice. I'm so overwhelmed. When people are numb, right? When people mm-hmm. are numb, they 
when, when they're disengaged and they're disembodied, when you come back in, you come into feeling. And it's not all roses and like little butterflies and fairies. You come into all the feelings. And if it's been heavy and there's been a lot, you come into heavy and a lot. So the act of embodiment needs to be careful. It needs to be gentle. It needs to be thoughtful. And I see, unfortunately, a lot of impulses towards embodiment that are reckless and not for lack of good intentions. It's just not knowing how to either from a, a, his, you know, an indigenous perspective, a cultural perspective, a, a, a training like in a particular modality perspective or a, like in a faith-based perspective, some kind of way to carry people through their embodiment journey. Um, so, uh, when you said, what can people do on a regular basis is, um, I suggest is finding a system that helps with embodiment. Like this idea that people can learn meditation from an app on their phone. They can just like do a breathing thing on their phone. And so we kind of pick willy nilly here and there, um, which is also a symptom of neoliberalism where things are just kind of again, disembodied from their roots, from their lineage. And they're just like, it's like going shopping. I'm going to pick, like, I'm in the ethnic food aisle and I'm going to, it's the mindfulness, you know, practice aisle. And I'm going to pick this and I'm going to pick that and I'm going to pick this without lineage, without support to help you in that embodiment journey that, you know, if you don't have a high stress load, you don't have a, you know, trauma history in your, your own life or in your family's life, your community's life, Maybe not too perilous, but for a lot of people, that can make a really bumpy journey. And so what are some better choices that we can make instead of maybe going to the app for meditation? Is there something that we can remember to do on our own and try and check in with ourselves, whether it's hourly, daily? I I think part of what I'm hearing in Kim advocate is is actually that not that there are better practices than others. I think there are a lot of really great practices out there, but that one of the symptoms of of Western neoliberal culture and 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 attitudes is is this this tendency to cherry pick, or if I if I'm going to say it a little bit more harshly, to culturally appropriate. Mm-hmm. And that that instead, I might advocate just a a slower, more thoughtful approach to begin to ask if I were if I were just starting out and I had no idea, but something about the idea of an embodiment practice or a a, a somatic mo- mo- modality somehow appealed to me. Um, that one of the things that I might do is ask myself questions about. Where am I in the context of my own life? What's, what's my own cultural history? And what kinds of affinities do I have with the practices out there? And can I, rather than just choose the practice and create my own kind of eclectic mix of things that I'm going to do to help myself feel better, is there a way that instead I might be more thoughtful and more considering of the really rich traditions, often indigenous traditions, 
that this work stems from and actually take the time to look into the history and to look into the cultural context and go, oh, okay, I re- oh my God, Zen Buddhism just does it for me. And so I'm, you know, I'm going to go and I'm going to study in a system that I think aligns with my values and my philosophies and my, my preferences and my leanings, but I'm actually going to do that system the honor and, and the respect of taking it seriously rather than just choosing some of the fruits of that system and incorporating it into my own little thing. I'm not, I'm not trying to suggest that an eclectic approach is always wrong. I just think I see a tendency to not be as thoughtful and culturally attuned and culturally humble about the ways I think I see a lot of folks going about getting into embodiment practices. And I'm going to say I have an eclectic approach. My, the approach I use is eclectic, so I'm not like knocking it. The thing that I realized in working myself, most, my own personal journey and working with other people is that, I mean, a perfect example I give this often is, so my organization was contacted by a school that had a program for pregnant and parenting teens. And they said, we're going to do like, we're going to bring in yoga and mindfulness. This is, we're so, you know, like this is cutting edge. Think about a pregnant and parenting teen. You're 15 with two kids. What kind of trauma load do you think you have? And so when they brought this in, the girls, like it was overload, right? And they stopped coming to school on those days. That they needed a different approach. So what, it was totally well-intentioned, right? But without the... Because when we think about mindfulness, it comes from Buddhism. Buddhism, that has a lineage, right? It has a, you have um, religious texts, you have teachers, you have community. And without that, and if you just take the practice out and you secularize it, when things get bumpy, what holds you? Because it does, embodiment can be a bumpy journey. So what holds you? And so I have created an eclectic system and I honor that I have secularized different practices and I have cherry picked them. What I have done is I've created another secular system to seat them in so that people have some, what I call a roadmap, right? A way to navigate. How do they know, how do I move through this, right? What supports me? What does this mean? What does that mean? Some decoders, right? And so that's important. So when you think about yoga, yoga is like an intact system. And, you know, the way it's offered, some people, you know, and this is, what we're asking is that people have, just be thoughtful as they do it. Like, cause sometimes you can have this idea, this thing is good. I've heard this thing is good. And your own personal experience of it could be lousy, mm. right? Maybe it's not good for you, or maybe there's a different way to go about it. So having an eye to how is your experience in it? And just um, a gentle interrogation of yourself from both, you know, a cultural lens inside and out right? And how is your overall journey? Are you getting worse? Are you getting better? Ray, did you want to add something to that? Just that that I often describe the place that I think a lot of us go to, particularly if we're introduced to embodiment practices quite suddenly or in quite an immersive way, is that we kind of, I often describe it as being thrown into the somatic soup. And there's lots of stuff there, I, I don't think that it's enough just to find ways to throw ourselves into that soup. I think it's important to also find ways to learn how to swim, to navigate, 
to digest that for me, the goal of, of an embodiment practice, regardless of the tradition, regardless of the system, whether it's an eclectic amalgamation of, of other systems, which quite frankly, probably all of the systems we're encountering already are, right? Even the ones that are thousands of years old have, have adapted and been synthesized and transplanted to, to different cultural contexts. But it seems to me that the, the point is to find strategies for learning how to travel. I mean, one of the things that, that NCAM and I have used in, in this course that, that we've been teaching together is this metaphor of the journey and that you can start the journey from any one of a number of locations. And I think you do want to be attentive to who are your guides, particularly if you haven't traveled anywhere else before, which is why I think NCAM's idea of a system is important. What are you doing? Where are you going? What's, what's next? What's your framework? But also, who are you going with? And are there people who are traveling with you using this same path that you can rely on and trust and get support from and support when you're in that place where you can be a supportive presence? But I think there's, there is something about learning how to travel and learning how to travel to all of the territories, including some of the dark places, some of the difficult places in your own territory that you need to do. And that that's, that's not, it's not something I think we can do with a single practice on a single visit or even, you know, five minutes a day for a couple of days. I, I don't know many people who have really learned to be good somatic travelers without taking the time to find more than one map, but to actually start with a relatively comprehensive map and some skills and to build those skills over time. Over time being operative, that this is a paced journey, that it's a gentle journey. I mean, one of the things, I mean, that often spurs people into this, right, is some kind of suffering, mm -hmm. right? Whether it's trauma or whatever, whatever the suffering is, whatever the origin of the suffering is. And so there's a, 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 a desire for relief. And that desire for relief can create a drive and an urgency um, and it's wise to remember to not let that urgency um, dictate uh, too much of your choices and your, your pace. Like it can help you say like the urgency is to start now. And then how do I create some spaciousness around this process? Um, and we're going to stumble. We're going to make mistakes. I mean, I, part, you know, my own journey, the things I teach are like, Lord, that people don't have to have some of the suffering or mistakes or in the sense of just unnecessary things happen. It's, you know, it's, it's a tough enough thing. I don't think we need to make it any harder. Um, and then like, where's the joy? Where's the pleasure in it too? That it's not all yucky stuff. It's not all dark stuff that um, when we can correct, connect to ourselves, we, in this way, we can, we expand the range of our experiences. In your course, you talk about reclaiming joy. In this time of tremendous stress and anxiety, what does true joy, true inner peace mean to you? And how do you go about achieving it? I like to think of joy as an expansive, open place. 
um, there's a sense of lightness of being, an ease in movement. So like there's a, I don't know, I'm doing a gesture that's like an upwards gesture with a little hop at the top, right? Playfulness. There's a playfulness in it. In, in the psychology literature, there's a distinction made between hedonics, which is just pleasure um, that can be temporary, transient, still pleasurable, and, and nothing wrong with it. But there's a distinction made between hedonics and, and something called eudaimonics, which is the pleasure that we get from meaning, from meaningful action. And, and so for me, um, I, I absolutely agree with and will pursue that light, expansive, outgoing, releasing, liberating pleasure any chance I get. And I have to say that in these times, that's increasingly elusive and that sometimes the pleasure that I crave and need and the pleasure that serves me is the more sober pleasure of being in integrity with myself. That there's, there's nothing particularly good happening right now for me in my life. I'm in pain. The world's on fire. And I can still take some pleasure in choosing to the degree that I can, to be in alignment with my own values and principles. And that's also pleasure. Do you get that lightness feeling though? When I am in alignment, it opens up the space and it gives the lightness. Yeah, there's spaciousness. There's for sure there's spaciousness in that too, for me anyway. But I, I actually often feel it in my spine or in my, in my spinal cord. I feel it like this centering alignment and resolve that just feels really good like it's that kind of pleasure rather than this but there is within that a sense of of spaciousness in that in that pleasurable resolve snatch it like snatching pieces of it wherever it shows up in the mm-hmm. you know whether it's a, like a sensory pleasure like no one lo- like, i mean I guess some people love doing the dishes i don't love particularly love doing the dishes but you know, recovering from a chronic illness and not being able to really stand and long enough to wash dishes, to stand and wash dishes and to feel that strength in my body. It's pleasurable, the warm water on my hands, to feel that. And so there's a sense of capacity in there and there's a, it's a moment of joy, right? Mm-hmm. And it Paying will come attention. and it will go. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and how important the small stuff is, you know? A smell that wafts on the breeze and it's only there for a moment, but, oh, that was good. And then you move on. I'd also like to hear from the two of you how you got into activism. You talk about in the course how you had very different histories in activism. And um, something that Ray talked about was that activism doesn't necessarily have to look like what you traditionally would think. And so there's many different types of activism. I think one of yours that you mentioned was research. And that felt better for you. I think you said as an introvert that doing research and other types of activism felt better for your body. So if the two of you could just talk about um, what are the different types of activism and how can you sort of figure out which one is good for you? 
if if we define activism as direct action that stimulates change for more justice, more fairness, more freedom for more people, then I, I think that really does broaden the kinds of actions that we understand could actually move us forward toward those toward those ends. And um, being, you know, being an academic, I have a deep respect for the research methodologies like, um, like action research, participatory action research, and arts-based research, and all kinds. And I mean, a lot of these are actually performed ethnography. I mean, they're really deeply in service to social justice. And so to, to say, no, that's not activism, I think diminishes its contribution. And so that's one example. The arts are an example. Um, in the course, we talk about sort of embodied microactivism, the ways in which we can transform how we relate to our own bodies and maybe help us shift away from the, the master-servant mind-body dichotomy. And instead of just doing things at our bodies or telling our bodies to do things, maybe we could actually come into some kind of a more mutual engagement with ourselves, with those aspects of ourselves. But also, how do we behave with one another on an everyday level? Are there ways in which our bodily actions, just, you know, in the grocery store, at the dentist, with your kids, you know, how are there, how is it possible to actually understand? And this is not, this is not about being a nice person. How do we begin to understand our actions? in our lives and in our world with other people as actually having embedded within them some dimension of power imbalance. Because I think that's the common thread. So if we can begin to address those power imbalances in our lives at whatever level and through whatever medium, for me, that's activism. And it's not mm -hmm. diluting saying, you know, you know, if, if I do embodiment practices, me being more embodied is activism. It can be. But I think, I, think it's, I think it's critical that we find a way to really be clear with ourselves and, and hopefully with one another. How are we shifting the imbalance of power toward more equality and equity and justice? And then it's activism. And I think it can look like almost anything. And starting with looking at yourself and thinking about what are the spaces in which I hold privilege, that was something Absolutely. that you brought up. Yep. Excellent place to start. And we all have some. It's pretty rare to find somebody who's at the bottom of every single power hierarchy. Um, and I think um, there can be an impulse to say power is bad. Like people say, ooh, power, like the, we look at the uses of power and say, ooh, power is bad. I don't want to have power. So then I shirk from like even acknowledging privilege or acknowledging that there's power dynamics. And that doesn't help anybody. Um, there are power dynamics. There are power dynamics in nature. They just don't have to be abusive power dynamics. What are you using? How are you doing it, right? What, what are you, um, 
you know, where can things, hierarchies be flattened and where can you work with power? I mean, it's a material fact that parents have more power over their small children. They're bigger, they have more capacity as adults than little people. But what, you know, what are you doing with that, right? It's not about saying there's no power difference and like, no, 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 cover my ears and cover my eyes. I don't see anything. It doesn't help. Yeah. Thank you for that clarification. You know, and also finding like, you know, bringing, let's thread that joy conversation back in. Like, are there places of activism that are joyful for you? Right? So- I, I often think about the the civil rights movement in the United States for in the you know 50s and 60s. When you think about all those marches, all those marches in the South, and D.C., and somebody fed all those people. Somebody fed somebody. There were church church women, as they were called, church ladies. They were in there making sandwiches and feeding. And you don't think. They weren't giving the speeches. They weren't. So you don't think of that as the activism. And maybe their joy is in caregiving, right? And so if you can find that alignment of what is joyful for you and what helps disrupt systems of oppression and creates liberation, like that's win, 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 win. Yeah. Find, find your role and find your forum because they might be different. And what are some ways that we can do that? We can start to do that. I think it's like this is just asking. Ask, there's a self-reflective process here, right? And mm. and it goes hand in hand with an embodiment practice because as you embody, you get better information from your body about which direction, you know, what feels like right, like in that center, in that alignment that Ray was talking about. So... You know, whether you do that kind of reflection like on your own independently, whether you do that with a community that you already exist in, Lindsay, you decided to take this course, this embodied activism course. And so in that, you know, we provide some maps and some ways to think about doing this, um, asking these questions. But that also like it set up a Facebook group. So then people are meeting. And so then there's some collective reflections that are happening. So there's not there's not a right way to do it, right? You're, you'll figure out um, it's to start, right? And if you make it so prescriptive, it has to be this, 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 and this, Then, and it's so big, then people kind of freeze up and just like, don't, well, I can't do anything. It's too much. And another idea that we talked about in class is the norming of the dominant. And how do you describe that and how do we start to dismantle that? It's hard. This is the water that we swim in, right? So our culture, I, I would I would say that, Lindsay, that you actually suggested it is it's identifying your own privileges, right? And helping you identify your own, basically your set of identities. And then from there, right, if you have a privileged identity, able-bodied, cisgendered, whatever it is, is start to learn about your own culture of that identity. Not the other's culture, your own culture. Mm-hmm. So what is able-bodied culture? What is it? What is cisgendered culture? Right? And so as you start to ask those questions, you'll begin to realize how your privilege, your culture is normed. And so instead of learning, because the impulse is to learn about the other, 
I would encourage people to learn about themselves first. And you always say, well, I don't have a culture. It's disabled people that have a culture or it's queer folks that have a culture. Like, it's not me. It's like, nope, we all have culture. And what that act does of that self-examination is you decenter yourself. Mm-hmm. Because before you were the center and you didn't even realize it. And as you start to study yourself, you realize, oh, I actually have something and other people are in relationship to that. That's a good starting place for me that I would say. Ray, do you have anything to add to that? Um, I, I think the idea of beginning to really understand the ways in which privilege makes our own lives easier. I think I think Peggy McIntosh's metaphor is a nice fit for the metaphor that Enkim and I have been using this course, the, the metaphor of the journey, because Peggy McIntosh talks about the invisible knapsack of privilege and encourages mm. us to actually unpack it, to actually look at what's in there, what's, what's in our knapsack that makes our journey through the world easier. Maps, currency, um, you know, compasses, access to things, keys to doors, and on a really practical level, making those invisible assets more palpable to each of us illuminates how people without those unearned Mm -hmm. advantages experience the world. So that you can actually extrapolate just from being able to go, wow, I can walk into a store and not be followed. Wow, I can, you know, get to the library through the front doors. Wow, I can, you know, drive down the street in a, you know, in a posh neighborhood and not get pulled over. Wow, I can. And once you get going on that list of things that you, that allow you to travel through the world with more ease, more comfort, less hassle, um, more choice, the more obvious it is how difficult the world is for people who don't hold that particular set of privileges that you do. And, and I think, as Enkem was saying, you know, ev- almost everyone has some degree of privilege, and we all, we all have our own intersecting set of privileges. And so I think that's why that exploration, that, that sort of piece of, of self-reflection can be so useful. But it's invisible, and so it takes some, some digging to find it. There was... My son's been working on a project on um, inequity in uh, race-based inequity in family wealth in the United States. And he was talking about the, the differential appraisals of homes based on the ownership. And then, so he's been doing this research. He's in an internship all summer. And there was just an article in the New York Times a few days ago about this thing where a mixed-race couple in a, in a neighborhood where their houses appraise at like 500000 um, got an appraisal and it came in under very low. And so what they did is they removed all black art, all black authored books, the um, you know the child of color and the person the the parent of color left and only the white person was there and they got it reappraised and it replaced much higher. So you wouldn't know unless you start like really questioning and reading and so um, and listening. There's a lot of listening that happens mm-hmm. here. And, and we can take that exploration very much 
into the realm of the body and begin asking ourselves, just based on what my body looks like, what are the ways that I move through the world? Um, less hampered, less encumbered, not as hassled. How is this easier for me in my everyday interactions with, with just the people that I run into that I have to navigate every day just based on how my body looks? I wear my hair in dreadlocks. And so before COVID, I did a fair amount of traveling. And so it was always I'd have to give extra time because I would get secondary screened because my hair, the texture of my hair triggers that they have to do an extra screen because the, the, the settings are for thin white people's hair. And so I would have to get pat down. I'd have to get scanned. I know women who would have to take their braids out because the machines are literally not set for our texture hair. The assumption is that it's not normative. Systemic oppression functioning at the level of the everyday. Thank you both for being here today. At this time, I would invite the two of you to add anything, any last thoughts. I have so many thoughts. <laughs> I have so many thoughts. I think about this. This is what keeps me up. I'm going to reiterate this idea that I think many of us with COVID, well, COVID has been a crucible to highlight so much that is not working mm. in our culture. And with the visible uh, spotlight of the recent spate in an ongoing line of state-sponsored violence against black and brown bodies has led to these uprisings. And so there's a lot churning for people and people are feeling an urgency, an urgency to act, an urgency to do something differently. So listen to that urgency, right? The urgency to start and then take a breath and then some intentionality about how, how to proceed with this journey um, and making sure that you find joy, like that that's part of it along the way. So those are the, the things that I would close out with. Ray? Yeah, um, exact, exactly the same. And, and I would just, I would add that I really believe each of us has a contribution to make. And, and, would just encourage listeners to find the contribution that makes you come alive, that, that gives you a sense of pleasure and integrity and commitment, and that it will take all of us doing all different kinds of things, each from our own locations and with our own particular skills and gifts and, and aptitudes, working individually and together, and just begin. Just begin in the place that your body says yes. That's where we would leave it. Many bodies make light work. Yes. Thank you. And where can we find more of your work online or elsewhere? Um, I can be found at lumostransforms.com. That's my organization where we do change work, um, embodied resilience work with individuals and organizations and um, little to big. And then the resilience toolkit is the approach that I developed. Um, and that's the resilience toolkit.co. Um, and we offer daily free classes to introduce people to this perspective and start to have a framework with which to navigate and all the usual socials, Lumos transforms, Instagram, Twitter. I'm personally on Twitter. 
all those places. And for me, um, you can find me at rayjohnsonsomatic.com. Um, and you can also read more about my, my work and my research on the embodied experience of oppression um, through my book called Embodied Social Justice. And you can take our course for, on embodied philosophy. And you can take the, um, the embodied activism course through embodied philosophy. Absolutely. Yeah. It's not too late. Thank you so, so much. It's been such a pleasure talking to you today. Thank you for having us. Thanks for listening. And thanks again to NCAM and Ray for joining us on the podcast. Don't forget, you can find Ray online at rayjohnsonsomatic.com, R-A-E-Johnsonsomatic.com, and NCAM at lumostransforms.com, L-U-M-O-S transforms.com. And their course on embodied activism is available at embodiedphilosophy.org. Once again, this episode is sponsored by Say Your Peace. Say Your Peace aims to spark global change through self-transformation and community dialogue. Share your story by using hashtag Say Your Peace, P-E-A-C-E, and following us on Instagram and Facebook. And tune in two weeks from now for a new episode of The Yoga Show. In the meantime, you can follow me at L-I-N-D-S dot T-U-C-K-E-R on Instagram for more from Yoga Journal and beyond. The Yoga Show is produced by me and Aviv Rubenstein. Follow him on social media at Rainbow Calrissian. Theme music by Katie Canavan. More from Katie at Accordion to Katie on Instagram. Until next time, for The Yoga Show, I'm Lindsay Tucker. We'll see you on the mat.